This is the SFNSF podcast recorded November 2019 at the American Bookbinders Museum in San Francisco. Tonight's guests are Charlie Jane Anders. I love teenagers. I think teenagers are so much just like more plugged in than adults in a lot of ways right now. And I, what I keep saying about writing young adult fiction is that you don't have to do as much hand-holding as you do in adult fiction. And Annalee Newitz. Oh, these kids that grew up watching TV, they're going to be zombies, they're going to be murderers, they're going to be, you know, terrible people. Uh, and then I think this, that social media has created the same kinds of anxieties, and we just can't quite see over that hump yet and imagine what the next thing is that's going to destroy the next generation. And now the moderator of SFNSF, Terry Bisson. Well, thank you all for showing up. Um, we have an extraordinary evening tonight. It's kind of special. We're not going to have a reading. We're going to discuss literature, technology, society, pop culture, and costume. So, um, and if you are familiar at all with the tech and science fiction field in the Bay Area, you probably have some familiarity with these two characters. Annalie Newitz is a writer, a tech writer, and also a editor, and also a novelist who has uh, published, what was the one? Autonomous, yes, and, and The Future of Another Timeline, which I'm not too familiar with, but um, has, has a, a solid reputation, has worked for Wired, has worked for, um, what other magazines? Um, certainly Wired, and there was one other I wrote down. Um, Anything that has like science in the title. There's a know, lot of magazines like, with science. And Some kind of, you know, popular or science in the title. Yeah. <laughs> and Annalie and Charlie Jane Anders uh, collaborated on a um, Gawker-financed um, um, magazine called IO9, which had quite an impact, certainly did on me and other people in the Bay Area. Good. Um, <laughs> Charlie Jane toiled for many years as the host of Writers with Drinks and then hit the ground running as a science fiction writer with her um, Nebula and Locust Award-winning All the Birds in the Sky, and um, I'm also familiar with her first novel, Choir Boy. Right, you were an early a, supporter. Yeah, yeah. appreciated and, it. Which was a, an Edna Edmund White um, winner. Or it was a it was a Lambda Literary Award winner, but it was num it was shortlisted for the Edmund White Award. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, they're here to talk not only about their own collaborations, which continue, but they've also. Uh, spun off in different directions. And uh, they want to talk about technology and popular culture, which includes science fiction and fantasy and all of us. And so um, we'll start with that. And maybe each will introduce themselves and what, uh, why did Annalise start and what you're going to do, what you're about right now, what... <laughs> Here's what's, what I'm going to do. What's teetering, on the, <laughs> what's teetering on the brink of your yeah, perception? Of my, okay, so, the, so here's what I'm going to do. Um, I am going to um, find a time machine, and we're going to go back in time, and we're all going to set things up so that we have more rights when we get back here. Um, at least that's what my characters do in my latest novel, Future of Another Timeline. Um, so Future of Another Timeline just came out. Um, it feels like a thousand years ago, but it was only like four or five weeks ago. Uh, and I've been on book tour. And this is actually one of the last public appearances I'm going to be doing for a while because I'm actually going to get to go back and start writing again. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, and I just finished um, my next book, which is a nonfiction book about ancient abandoned cities. It's about archaeology. And um, it has a bit of a fantasy and science fiction feeling to it because it's a lot of kind of recreating ancient societies and trying to figure out uh, what made them exciting to the people who lived there and also why they decided to abandon them um, when things uh, became all on fire, sometimes literally. 
Um, and I, um, what else should I say? I'm working on a podcast with Charlie Jane called Our Opinions Are Correct, which just won a Hugo. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so what are you up to, Charlie? Yeah, uh, so I also am working on the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct with Anna Lee, and uh, I published a novel back in February called The City in the Middle of the Night, which is kind of a fairy tale, but it, it's also kind of serious science fiction. It takes place on a tidally locked planet, which I don't know if you all know what that means, but basically it means that one side of the planet always faces the sun, and there's a permanent day side and a permanent night side, and I was sort of fascinated by the ideas of these creatures who live in permanent darkness and how would you learn to understand them and communicate with them um and you know i'm still doing writers with drinks i've got a young adult trilogy that is in the pipeline and i think the the first one is basically done i'm putting the finishing touches on it right now the second one is mostly done and the third one is kind of a little bit more amorphous um, and hopefully the first book in the Young Adult Trilogy will be coming out in 2021 along with a book of my short stories. And I'm also working on a TV show as a staff writer. And uh, yeah, so kind of keeping busy. We're both keeping busy. And I apologize. Busy. I have to run. I have to a flight to catch in like an hour. So that's why we're going to have to cut this a little short. And I apologize for that. So what's a TV show? Uh, what, which TV show am I working on? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I can't really talk about it that much, but I'm on the writing staff of a show called Why the Last Man that's like based on a graphic novel. Why the Last Man. It's like a graphic novel where everybody with a Y chromosome dies except for one person and his monkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and his monkey friend. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, that's it. And what, what is the idea of our... You say our opinions are always correct. But why don't you just say our opinions are more correct than yours? Or well, that's implied. Dating. That's implicit. That's implied. Yeah. I mean, if your opinions differ from ours, then obviously They're they are not, not correct. correct so. Because ours are correct. <laughs> so yeah. we started the podcast because um, we had been collaborating on io9 for many years. And before that, we had collaborated on a magazine called Other, which probably no one remembers. A few people are nodding. <laughs> you guys are so nice. Um, plus, plus, she's such a geek, which is for sale back there. Yeah, that was. I think that was our first collaboration. That right? might have been our first. No, I think other magazine came before that. Did it? I yeah. guess so. Yeah, yeah. We, it was sort of all all in in sort of the early 21st century uh, happening. <laughs> and so we we kind of missed having that collaboration, and and we are always having conversations about science fiction and society and the sort of relevance of of science to what we're doing. And we're like, you know. We could just record these <laughs> conversations and turn it into a podcast. So we tried that, and that was terrible. So um, we can't. You, it turns out you can't just sit in the middle of my living room and record a conversation and turn it into a podcast. You actually have to professionalize and prepare a little bit. So the podcast that you hear today is, I would say, a slightly more polished. It's product. upgraded. It's podcast 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> What's your? What do you think? Do you have anything to add to the origin story of, of our opinions? I think opinions that pretty are much covers why, it. We, why we, are we, our opinions so correct? Our opinions are correct because we're plugged into the universal mind. Obviously, yes. you know, we 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 dream in in the source code of the universe. I mean, you know, as one does. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, we we always it was it was a long couple of years after both of us left IO9 of us not really having a project that we were working on together, and it was really kind of nice to have like a little bit of a break but then I feel like this was like the perfect thing for us to collaborate on and we had sort of talked about doing a different idea for a podcast which was going to be a retelling of the George Eliot novel Middlemarch set in a really high-tech super apartment building with it was like, going to be set in the NEMA building. Do you guys know the NEMA building on Market? So I became obsessed with the NEMA building and I was like I want to do a story about um, the people who live there, but it was going to be like Middlemarch, so it was going to all be about like inheritance and like all these these social issues around voting and stuff. And then I think the idea was that the point of view characters would be people watching everyone in the building on surveillance cameras. I thought it was that the surveillance cameras the surveillance came to life. Cam right, so it was the surveillance be cameras that the were artificially intelligent and thought for right, themselves. Was an AI, and the right. AI was just watching all the people and, and kind of was speculating about them. 
So yeah. maybe we'll do that one day. That was going to be fun, but I feel like this this version of the podcast is probably a little easier to do on a biweekly More basis. Accessible. Yeah. And you know, it's it's just fun to geek out about stuff. But Middlemarch is a great science fiction novel. It is novel. a great great novel, <laughs> for sure. Well, let me do an origin story here. I'm curious. Uh, the thing I always admired about you first, Charlie Jane, who I met first, but Anna Lee also, and the work okay. you did together, <laughs> um, was your humor. And so you did the, the, a lot of people talk about tech, and Wired Magazine certainly has a lot of stuff about tech, and the whole Earth Catalog, and the beginning of everything that's here. But it seemed that you two saw everything, um, you brought humor to it. In a, in a very different way. And I'm wondering if that was the basis of, where'd you, where'd you two meet? How did you hook up and what was your first project? Or can you tell me? <laughs> I mean, we've, we've known each other for 20 years now. So that's, that's kind of amazing. And, you know, I think humor was a big part of what we bonded over, for sure. Like liking weird old movies. I think one of the first times Annalie and I hung out, I showed them... Uh, a, a treasured VHS tape of a movie called Rollerblade, which is about, which is about, it's not Rollerball, it's Rollerblade, and it's about roller Thou skating. Must skatist or diest. Yes, it's about roller skating <laughs> nuns with switchblades roller, in a post-apocalyptic right, world. Right, roller skating, not rollerblading. There's yeah. no rollerblades in the movie Rollerblade. They have, but they have switchblades. No, no, they have. They have switchblades. It's like roller so it's skates roller and switchblades. The guy didn't. The, the guy who made that movie didn't think rollerblade was a real word, and so he just was like, "It's rollerblade." But it's an amazing post-apocalyptic story. Like, I love the idea that they have a church of nuns who whose whole religion revolves around roller skates and, and giant smiley faces. Yes. Oh my and God. there's like an evil sock puppet. And so also, basically, it's part of a whole like franchise. Like, it's a, there's a there's bunch an, of sequels. There's an extended universe of the rollerblade. It's yeah. from the guy who made, oops, it's from the guy who made uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown. That's his most famous movie. Um, rollerblade is one of his lesser known movies. But so we bonded over that and I feel like humor was always a big part of it and, you know, our collaborations were always a little bit whimsical, I feel like. I, I would say, yeah, I mean. A little bit kind of wacky. Yeah, and we've, we're both really interested in kind of what's happening at the edges of culture or what happens when two very different subcultures kind of overlap and, and make some kind of weird baby in the middle, um, some kind of cyborg space baby that's going to take over the internet. Um, we did that. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I feel like the humor is a big part of it. And then an obsessive interest in things that no one is paying attention to, you know, is, is part of it as well. Just weirdness. Yeah. You know. Weirdness. <laughs> so there's an outsider element as well. The humor. Well, that's where humor comes from a lot. Is a from lot of the time. Seeing stuff from slightly outside. Yeah. I think that's true. And like. Yeah, I think that's very true. I feel like I feel like you, Charlie. I feel like you have more of a um, in your work generally. Like you, I don't want to say you deal with humor more, or I don't know if you deliberately put more humor into it. But I definitely think humor is like a big part of your voice. You know, whereas I always think of myself as somebody who's like incredibly annoyingly serious about how we're going to like actually have a revolution and then I accidentally make a joke somewhere along the way like not and not expecting that it'll be really funny and so people often laugh at stuff that I thought was really serious and not like in a way that makes me I don't feel sad about it but I'm just like oh that was yes that was very funny I, I made a pun there yes I did <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think accidental humor or humor that's kind of discovered in the course of the story or humor that comes out of the characters and their perspective is really good. But I do kind of gravitate in my writing towards kind of, you know, quirky, absurdist, kind of wacky, like Douglas Adams, Kurt Vonnegut inspired kind of zaniness or Carol Churchill also, I think a little bit, or, or she's, she's not funny, but her stuff is very weird. Or like Christopher Durang, what? She is funny. Like, some of her stuff is really kind of bizarre. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I, I feel like I like that, and it's, 
it's something that I've tried to use more consciously, actually. Like, if you read The City in the Middle of the Night, it's not as comedic as some of my earlier books because I was trying to use humor with very intentionally and not just kind of use it to distract from all the stuff where my storytelling is falling down, kind of. I don't know. Well, the Tannelly Locke thing, I, uh, I haven't read the book yet, but I was fascinated by the concept. And But I think it's been around, uh, but I can't remember. Who, do you remember, Rudy? Who, somebody did this before. I mean, it's a huge thing in real life. Yeah. T- the, the idea of a tidally locked planet that faced... Yeah, no, Roger Zelazny wrote a tidally locked planet book, which I haven't read yet. Oh, um, which one was that? What was it? Uh, Jack Zelazny. Ah. It was, it was a sort of, uh, one of his, you know, walking the title between fantasy and science fiction novels. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a new concept. And I guess, I mean, I was doing some research on this a while ago, and... Uh, there was a time when everybody thought Mercury was tidally locked to the sun, and then they realized it wasn't. But before they figured out that that was not true, there were some books written about, or stories written about Mercury being tidally locked. But it's not a new concept. I honestly, uh, I thought that I was going to be too late. Like, I thought that there was going to be, like, a, a just a huge number of tidally locked planet books coming out right about now because we're discovering so many real life exoplanets that are tidally locked and I thought everybody's going to want to write about this because it's so cool and I still think that's going to happen but I feel very grateful that I got there I got in under the wire before <laughs> tidally locked planets became a major subgenre of science fiction which I think five ten years from now they would definitely will be I think it's mark my words it's going to be a huge genre isn't that a big part of like Chronicles of Riddick? They're on a planet where well, Pitch Black. They pitch have a Black. planet where the night, days and nights are really extreme. Really, right. Okay. So that's yeah. But, so it's not quite the same thing. Yeah. <clears throat> no, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like it's 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 a really cool concept that just hasn't quite. You know, it's it, there's a few examples of it, but it hasn't become as big as it will. I think. It is funny because I feel like one of the problems that happens sometimes in science fiction is when there's a big discovery in the realm of science like everybody writes about it and then you're just like okay great so now there's like 90 million stories about CRISPR Um, (laughs) (laughs) but you know CRISPR brought us Rampage so I'm forever grateful uh, that that movie exists now so yeah sometimes it turns out well I guess (laughs) well I noticed that both of you when we met for dinner they both lit up when Rudy Rucker walked in. Oh, yeah. So, yeah Rudy, Rudy I, is like a very important influence, yeah. Well, I think Rudy has always, um, whether intentionally or not, uh, written his books with, very, with a lot of humor. And um, so, and it, to me, it's an important element in popular culture. So what are you focusing now? It, it, what, what are you, you're also a... Uh, on the not on the staff, but you're a, a contributing writer to the New York Times. Are you doing tech stuff for them? Um, I've been doing a bunch of different things for the New York Times. Um, I'm working on some stuff about tech and science. Um, I've been doing some writing for them on pop culture. I did a piece on Dungeons and Dragons that people seem to think was good. Um, and the person who DMs my Dungeons and Dragons group is now like really famous on D and D Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Because she's like, I was in the New York Times. Um, so I, that's good because she's a great DM. Um, and she puts up with a lot <laughs> from our group. So she deserves all the accolades. Um, so I've been doing some culture writing and some science writing for them. And I have a piece that I'm working on with them right now that hopefully will come out pretty soon that's about what the world will be like after social media dies. Um, so that was a, a fun, <laughs> a hopeful piece of speculative writing. Um, and uh, it was good. I got to interview a lot of um, academics and also science fiction writers to to get their take. And it was great because people had really dramatically different visions of way the way things would come out. And I think that's partly because people don't really pe- we're having a really hard time thinking beyond the present moment right now and thinking beyond what social media has done to us. And um, which is funny because it really is every generation we see like a new type of media that completely blows our brains up like television was um television just i mean remember when we all thought television had destroyed a whole generation um i mean maybe <laughs> not all of you remember that but that was a big topic in the 1970s was like all oh, these kids that grew up watching tv they're going to be zombies they're going to be murderers they're going to uh-huh. be you know terrible people um and 
Uh, and then I think that social media has created the same kinds of anxieties and we just can't quite see over that hump yet and imagine what the next thing is that's going to destroy the next generation. So, um, so that's what I'm trying to think about is like what that's going to be like and, uh, and how we will recover from the trauma of Facebook. So, um, so those are the kinds of things I get to do. It's pretty nice, actually. It's a pretty fun gig um, because they really are, um, the opinion section is really interested in just whatever kind of weird take I have. Um, so they do specialize in weird takes, for better or worse. So, What do you mean, the opinion section? Yeah, but there's a couple different opinion sections, but yeah, in the New York Times. Okay. Yeah. And you work with a, a team of people? Or, or are you all bad ideas around, or what? Well, I, d- I work with an editor, and I pitch ideas to, to her, so yeah. Oh, so there okay. is, I mean, they have a team. I'm not on staff, I'm just a contributor, yeah. so they do have a team that works in the office. Uh, and they definitely have meetings where they decide whether my ideas are good or bad. So <laughs> they don't invite me to those meetings. <laughs> so <laughs> usually they like the ideas, though. So obviously something is going well. Um, so yeah. Um, so that's so I'm working on that. And then um, now that I finished my nonfiction book, I'm working on my next novel. So I'll be starting that in like two weeks. So wish me luck. <laughs> I got to start doing a lot of research. So. This is the one where I had a title. Um, yes, oh, yeah. the terraformers. The terraformers. So, what's your position on terraforming? I I, I saw um, Kim Stanley Robinson yesterday, who sort of did a lot to popularize the concept. He did, yeah. Books. I got his permission to write this novel. In fact, he said, "As long as I have a character in there named Kim, that it is okay with him if I write a book about terraforming." Um, <laughs> Actually, true. Um, he he was he was pretty he was pretty um, humorous about it. But yes, so there will be a character named Kim. So that is one thing I know for sure. Uh, and my position is that uh, we're already terraforming the planet. You know, we already we've already remade the planet in for human consumption. Um, you know, it started thousands and thousands of years ago when people first started burning forests in order to you know clear the land. Um, there's evidence that people have been burning the land for like 45,000 years now. Um, there's a new study that's come out uh, a couple of years ago that's kind of changed the way we see how people interact with the planet. Um, so 45,000 years of us remaking the planet. I think we know what terraforming looks like, and now we're starting to see how it can bite you in the ass. So I think it's this, the book that I'm working on is set in the far future, so uh, presumably we've had many more years to screw up and figure out how terraforming works. And so it's about a, it's, it's about people living on a planet that is owned by a development company and the development company is, um, building the planet and it has, it builds different generations of people to, to try to maintain the planet. Um, and so it's going to be a multi-generational epic. It's kind of a Western because they're out on the prairies of the planet, kind of near a boreal forest. And, um, it'll start, yeah, it'll start. It'll go through three generations, and then the final generation, which everyone is really excited about, is there will be a sentient flying train, um, because public transit is really important when you're building a planet. Um, and so the sentient flying train is going to fall in love with a uplifted cat. So that's that's the end. <laughs> that's the future. Um, it's not. I'm not giving you a spoiler because that's a huge part of the book. So that's just the premise of the final generation. So um, so yeah, I'm thinking a lot about. Um, the environment, and I'm thinking a lot about um, water rights treaties. So a big part of the book is water rights treaties, and another big part is public transit, because obviously those are the most important things. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Hurry up and write this so I can read it. I know. I Charlie's it. really, Charlie is like weirdly excited about this book. I'm, I'm really excited about your excited. YA novels. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those? Um, sure. Okay, so my I have this young adult trilogy, which... I sold a couple years ago and it's just, it's been taking a while because it's, I'm writing a whole trilogy and there's a lot of world building and everything, but basically it's young adult space opera. It's uh, kind of got a little bit of, it's got a lot of Star Trek and a bit of like Guardians of the Galaxy, Star Wars kind of. It's very swashbuckling. I kind of describe it as people having feelings in the middle of space battles Um, and there's like romance and there's queerness and there's, um, and it's basically this teenage girl who's living on earth, but she's learned that she's actually belongs out in space and that she should be part of this, uh, this 
conflict that she's, she's an important part of this conflict that's going on out in space. And so she has to leave Earth with a group of other teenagers from Earth and go out into space and save the galaxy, basically. And spoiler alert, they do save the galaxy. That's, you know, <laughs> that's pretty much, it's not gonna be a bummer. Uh, but it's, it's very, like, it's, it's, it's very different from anything I've written before. It's super fun, it's fast paced, it's action, it's people taking care of each other and caring about each other and being kind to each other. And um, I can't tell you a whole lot yet, but two, two fun things about it. One is, on this alien spaceship, they have a universal translator that is sort of like any universal translator you've ever come across in science fiction, except that when you, whenever you meet a new person or creature or alien or whatever, it tells you their pronoun right up front. Um, and the other thing I'll tell you is that I'm very careful about like nobody touches anybody else in this book other than like in a fight scene or whatever without like asking for verbal permission first. So it's like a very kind of friendly, nice kind of book. Also, I will tell you, I think this is actually in the second book now, oh. but one of the um, people has the pronoun fire, which is totally my new pronoun. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, the, fire is a fire-breathing alien um, so, whose pronoun like, is fire. I just love the idea of someone saying, like, what is your pronoun? Fire! <laughs> <laughs> I am excited about that. I hope people like it. Anyway, so that's, that's like the trilogy. It. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kicking my ass. But What's mostly the name in a good of way. the first book? I Wait, what's the working name? Tell them the working I don't, title. I'm not okay. even sure. All right. So Wait, the, never the, mind, never the mind. Very well, I don't even want to say because I think we're going to okay. change it. It's but. good. I don't think they're going to change it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Is it true that you researched um, your audience for that book by running popsicle, uh, popsicles with drinks? Or writers with popsicles? <laughs> Pop, writers Excuse popsicles. me. Writers with popsicles. That's a great popsicles. idea. I should do that. Um, I mean, I, I have done some visits to high schools, and that was really fun. And I've gotten to spend some time interacting with, with teenagers lately. Like, I taught at this camp for teenagers who want to write science fiction called Shared Worlds. I love teenagers. I think teenagers are so much just, like, more plugged in than adults in a lot of ways right now. And I, what I keep saying about writing young adult fiction is that you don't have to do as much hand-holding as you do in adult fiction especially when it comes to queerness or anything political or anything challenging with like adult readers. You have to be like, no, no, it's okay, really, pat, 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 it's okay, don't be scared. There's some queerness and some politics, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you through it. Whereas teenagers are just like, yeah, okay, I'm ready, yeah, let's do it, you know? Because teenagers are just more, they, they've grown up with a lot of stuff that older readers are maybe less familiar with. So it's actually, it's kind of liberating in a way to write for teenagers. Well, I have a question about terraforming, and I'm thinking, I'm looking around, well, I look around right now at a lot of stuff that's happening, beginning to happen, is the anti, is the unforming, taking down dams, uh, re, uh, un, unreclaiming wetlands, um, you know, like, like returning them to... Oh, like rewilding. Yeah, rewilding would be a yeah, mm -hmm. or taking the dams down, like on the Snake River, and even on the on the um, uh, the Missouri River, mm -hmm. which is now a, a, a series of big lakes, and there's a lot of um, talk about taking down the dams, and then the you know, mm -hmm. and in New England and also out here. So, what do you think of that process, and how how does that fit in? I think, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, we are seeing some efforts to do rewilding. Uh, there have been, um, you know, more wild animals coming into cities as a result. Um, you know, we see hawks around here all the time now, which we didn't 10 years ago, um, which is great. Um, one of them actually murdered a pigeon and ate it on my porch, um, which is <laughs> really interesting. Um, you know, they just, they whatever, they eat pigeons. Um, so I think that, I mean, we're seeing that process and people like Stuart Brand, for example, are really advocating for things like de-extincting mammoths and, you know, really taking it um, uh, as far as you can. Um, you know, the question is like, what, when you return the land to its quote, natural state, what is that, right? So is it just returning it to the state it was 100 years ago? Is it, is it de-extincting mammoths and returning it to the Pleistocene state before um, you know, humans came to the Americas and, and killed all the mammoths? Um, so 
That's happening at the same time that our current presidential administration is, of course, turning a lot of um, lands that have been conserved into places that can be drilled for oil or for other natural resources. And we're seeing our national parks being kind of frozen out of new budgets. So there's these twin impulses, I think, of, you know, we've got to return um, developed land to its natural state and we've got to return um, or we have to, you know, kind of exploit uh, parkland that has been conserved. So I don't know that these two things cancel each other out. Um, I think that in a way, the rewilding movement is is going to, it may not wind up helping us very much. Um, what I, and also I would add that I think rewilding is another form of terraforming. It's really about, you know, humans trying to shepherd the planet in a different direction. And so what I think is probably the most promising path right now is the idea of trying to build, not to, to return all of the world to its so-called natural state, but to try to build cities and build communities that are sustainable and that are in harmony with the ecosystems around them. So whether you're building with new kinds of materials or I love the idea of building a city that has... Um, you know, a migration pathway through the middle of it, um, because that's, of course, one of the big problems is that you get a human community and it blocks off the migration of an animal through there. And then the animal's habitat is um, no longer available and, and the animal starts to go extinct. So imagine like San Francisco having instead of having Market Street, like actually having the river that runs under Market Street, you know, reopened. Right. So that you would have this river in the middle of the city um, and animals could use it. I mean, non-human animals. Humans could use it too, maybe. Um, all of the animals could use it. Uh, so I like that idea. And I think to me, in my novel Autonomous, I have a lot of examples of cities that are sustainable in that way, that are kind of carbon negative cities uh, that are built from living materials. Um, and people have made a lot of inroads in that future toward um, living sustainably and, and using renewable fuel. They've also reinvented slavery. Um, so there's not, you know, you get a little good, you get a little bad. I, I try to write, <laughs> I don't write utopias. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you know, but I do, I actually do think it's realistic to imagine that we might kind of get it right in one way and then get it really wrong in another way. That's very human. It's very on brand for homo sapiens. Right. So, um, so that's, that's kind of, the, that's what I like to think about when I think about terraforming is imagining how to shape a world so that we can live you know, essentially in harmony with the ecosystems there. And so in my book, The Terraformers, that'll definitely be a part of it. There'll be a lot of green technology. There will also be volcano wars because they're building a fucking planet and it's a bunch of crust sitting on top of magma. So when people get pissed, you know, they're going to set off a volcano. Like, I just think that I'm really excited about that. <laughs> I'm just really excited yeah. about volcano wars. Um, won't be too bad. Like no one, no humans will die in the in the volcano well, war. Hopefully, just ruined Maybe it. Maybe a couple. I don't know. Come on, a couple bad guys. Come on, get your Roland Emmerich I'm on. Sorry. Okay, wait, let's have a vote. Should I kill the some of the bad guys in the volcano war? Kill the humans. Okay, fine. Kill the humans. Who thinks, who thinks kill that there the humans, should be? Kill the humans. Kill the humans. Kill the humans. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> all right, fine. No cute animals will be killed, all right? Okay, fine. <laughs> what do you think about terraforming? You've written I a mean, lot about it, so too. so I've written some stuff about it. I think one of the things that Annalie and I have in common is this obsession with the idea of nature as being kind of an invented idea as a, as a social concept. For sure. It's something that's a big theme in my first kind of mainstream science fiction novel, All the Birds in the Sky, the idea that nature is something that we just kind of invented to describe stuff that we didn't make. And it's not even true because things, things that we consider natural are actually just the result of like earlier human intervention. But also we're part of nature. We are actually, you know, we are made of creatures. biology. We're <laughs> actually, animals. we're made of meat, I've heard. We're made of meat. Yeah. <laughs> Where did I hear that we're made of meat? I can't remember. Somebody told me that we're made of meat. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but, you know, and in, in the city in the middle of the night, there's a lot about like humans intervening in an, in an ecosystem that we don't understand, which I think is a thing that I'm always interested in the fact that we tend to blunder in and start making changes to an ecosystem before we even understand how it currently works or what we're screwing around with. And, 
You know, the, I, I think there's like, there's a, one of the quirkier things in the city in the middle of the night is that humans show up on this other planet and start kind of just naming all of these creatures after creatures that they found on Earth. So there's like giant kind of almost like buffaloes with like giant pincers and tentacles and like writhing tendrils and all these other things, which we decide to call crocodiles because they're predators and that's just a word that seems to make sense. And there's like bison who have like razor sharp threads going inside their mouth between these like really sharp teeth and they can slice your head off before you even know they're there. And so they're called bison. And you know, so on and so forth. Cats have like spikes coming out of their neck and have like acid barf and I don't know. But there's cat butter. There is cat butter, yes. Tasty cat butter. Mm, anyway. I love cat butter. Everybody loves cat butter. <laughs> <laughs> Mason salty cat butter. Well, that whole idea of, of nature being an invention, I mean, that really comes from the Romantics. Around 1800, people, all of a sudden, they had this fascination with what they saw as the world that wasn't being industrialized, you know, and so you had that, that concept that came in. But it, it fascinates me. I usually, when I read about, especially about you, Annalie, as um, um, dealing with tech, uh, and I've always thought of that as mainly being here in the Bay Area as being um, um, computers and, and iPhones and stuff like that. And it's interesting, it seems to me like you're dealing with much larger concepts like uh, like biology and geography and, and huger, bigger things than the next thing. <laughs> bigger things than the next computer? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, and again, this is something that Charlie Jane and I are both pretty interested in, the idea that um, nature itself is kind of, is a form of technology and that, you know, the planet itself has... Um, you know, it is a giant machine. It has inputs and outputs and, you know, you can perturb its uh, quote unquote natural function. Um, and that's something that in, you know, um, environmental science is becoming quite real. Like you have environmental scientists doing things like going out into a natural area and counting every single predator and counting every single prey and counting the trees and doing things like trying to quantify an ecosystem or just putting um, camera traps everywhere or putting sensors everywhere to get a sense of what's actually out there when we're not sitting there with our binoculars. Um, so if you, if you like animals, I definitely encourage you to look at camera trap Twitter um, because uh, environmental scientists, you know, they'll put out cameras and if an animal walks by, it'll snap a picture. And so you get these incredible, you know, just animals hanging out doing weird things. Sometimes they're biting the camera, which is always delightful. Um, but also they're just, you know, they're just acting the way they would. And that gives um, biologists a lot of really great data on just who's <clears throat> out there um, that we wouldn't normally see. And, um, you know, and people will do things like try to talk about how many calories a given piece of land consumes based on all of the animals and all of the plants in that huh. landscape. And so once you're sort of at that level of understanding, um, which we aren't because we don't have enough data on, on the environment yet, but once you can quantify the entire planet and all of the inputs and outputs, like you really could build a new one or you could figure out like what kinds of things you need to put into the environment to perhaps maintain the ice caps if that's what you really want to do, um, which is definitely what we need to do. So anyway, that was a long tangent on no, how the Earth is a machine. Awesome. <laughs> well, Charlie Jane, have you ever heard of the concept? Uh, E.O. Wilson, I think, wrote a book called Half Earth. Uh-huh. Yeah. What do I, you think of that? I, I'm not familiar with it. I, I've, I know, I've heard of The Naked Ape, but I've never heard of that other that's book. That's Desmond Morris. Oh, sorry. That's okay. okay. <laughs> but it's I, a good I'm not one. familiar with, with Half Earth. Can you explain it a little bit more? Well, that's it. You leave. Oh, the idea leave that half like, the Earth alone. Yeah, Eo Wilson is a, is big into the idea that the most of the Earth needs to be a um, like a sanctuary or um, conserved. Yeah. He I buys mean, into the nature idea big time. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting idea. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's not something that I think that we could ever do in real life because I don't think people would consent to just abandon half of the planet. And I think that, you know, it it shades very easily over into kind of all of this, you know, overpopulation hysteria that, that 
that in turn shades over really easily into like, eugenics and other icky things. But, uh, but I mean, I think there's something, I mean, there's definitely something very moving and beautiful about visiting a place that isn't overrun with, with, you know, the obvious signs of human habitation or whatever, when you get to go to a, a beach or a, you know, a meadow or whatever, where you're not seeing people's garbage everywhere. And I, I can understand the kind of wanting to be able to have that. Um, I think that that's a particular kind of pleasure that's kind of distinct from whether that's like environmentally necessary. I don't know. I think that I'm with Anna Lee in that I think what we need is more sustainable living for humans and that, you know, given the number of humans we have now and the ways that we're living, what we really need is, is cities that are built to be carbon negative or carbon neutral with like, with technologies that are more kind of uh, grown rather than built kind of. I want to grow my next phone. That would be awesome. We should just have like a phone tree, but not like a not like a phone tree, not like a phone tree in like an old 1950s thing where people are like, "Did you hear me?" You know, whatever. But but a phone tree that like just grows phones. Can like I just have both though? Like we I kind of want to. I okay. want to go out to the tree and be like, "Hey, did you hear? Like, get out, get out the vote." Yeah, totally. I think we should have both. I think yeah. we should have both kinds of phone trees. Any kind of, like phone trees are just, every kind of phone tree is good. Yeah, definitely. I support all of the phone trees. <laughs> the, fo- the forest of phone trees. Yes. Well, let me open this up. Other people have, must have questions. Yes. Hi. Yourself? Hi. In the awesome jackets. Yeah. Please. <laughs> <laughs> One so um, given the role of speculative fiction in um, social change, like, for example, imagining good futures or forewarning of negative futures or creating metaphors for us to think about our cultural anxieties and stuff, um, I was wondering, like, what's the role of science fiction in changing minds? Like, how often or to what extent do you write for people who disagree with you, who have, like, the incorrect opinions, if you will? And, <laughs> you know, given that... Twitter just has like a meltdown every time there's a female superhero. Like, how can we sneak that in? That's a that's a really good question. Um, I I will answer a piece of it, and then I'll let Charlie answer too because I think we both have thoughts on it. But um, so the question that interests me is, do you write for people who disagree with you? Because it's very hard to do. Um, and definitely, my most recent novel, Future of Another Timeline, I actually. I had a big struggle because I was like, okay, I'm writing a book that's basically about feminists, um, and that means that a big chunk of the audience is just going to go away. And I just kind of had, and I was like, oh, well, should I like not call it feminists? How can I hide it? I'll just be like, oh, it's about time travel. Um, but um, in my previous novel, Autonomous, um, I did this thing, and I've talked about it a couple times, and I want to preface this comment by saying that Autonomous is about whatever the fuck you want it to be about, but... As the author, um, <laughs> here's what I thought it was about. I'm just saying, look, <laughs> so I was thinking a lot about, so one of the main characters in the book is a robot and um, named Paladin, and Paladin switches gender halfway through the book, and she does it basically because she wants to get laid, and the guy that she wants to have sex with is homophobic, and it's because we see why he's been brought up in a culture that's very homophobic, and he has a lot of anxieties, and he's really, really cute. And and Paladin's like, I'm in, you know? Um, and she figures out through plot, plot, plot that she can kind of appear to be a female to him, even though she's a giant, bulky, huge mech who is, like, much bigger than this guy. Um, and... And so to me, the story I wanted to write was I wanted to write gay robot sex. I I wanted to write a big, giant, manly robot having big, fucking manly sex with a man. Um, and, and, And it happens, and it's really sweet and tender and lovely. However, I also knew that there would be a lot of... Um, straight men reading the book who might not really be into that the way I was. Um, And that's understandable and that's fine. And so I kind of created this escape hatch when I was writing it because we see the human man who's into Paladin. His name's Elias. And Elias figures out, you know, that there's this little piece of Paladin that's female. And he's like, oh, you're a woman now. And I was like, 
I, as the author, am never going to come in and comment on it and say, like, by the way, I think this is gay sex, because <laughs> I wanted people to be able to read that scene as either, yeah, I get it, this is totally just a guy who wants to believe he's having straight sex, but he's really having gay sex with a robot, but I also wanted people to be able to read it and be like, wow, it's really a girl. He found a girl. It's just like in Yentl. And, uh, you know, just and, like in Yentl. And here's the thing is that, like, so I, I built that into the scene because I was like, I really want people who want to have straight sex to be able to enjoy this too and who, who might be. And, but at the same time, the more I wrote it um, and, and as it got into the story and we see Paladin as a woman, um, it kind of became important to me that Paladin was a woman because she's big and bulky and like she doesn't fit, you know, feminine stereotypes. And I might have some experience with that, um, you know, just personally. And so I kind of, in the end, wound up feeling like, like I said, it's whatever you want. Like Paladin might just really be a girl. I think Paladin's probably actually non-binary, but whatever. So, but, or Paladin is having fucking great gay sex. So I think... To me, that was an example of like, I very consciously was like, I want to write a book that is not going to throw people out of the story if they, like Charlie was saying, if they need their hand to be held during gay sex. Like, huh. it can be scary, you know, um, especially gay sex with a robot, even though Paladin is so hot. It's so obviously everybody <laughs> would want to have sex with Paladin, but some people just need to have the right pronoun before they can have sex. So that is an example of, of, of doing that. And I, and I think that, and I actually got a lot of feedback from guys who were like, wow, I never thought about gender this way before. And so I feel like at least a tiny little group of people like maybe read that and were like, oh, um, and that makes me happy. Even if it's five people, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah, and I actually, one of the things I love about Autonomous is that it does kind of explore gender in this really unique way and that you know that the robot doesn't have a gender, it doesn't really care about gender, and just the robot doesn't really see a use for a gender identity other than for... Getting laid. The, for, well, other than for human interaction. Yes. So the, the gender identity of the robot is purely a, a user interface for interfacing with humans. And so it's just like, whatever works, kind of, and which yeah. I think is awesome. And that's awesome. definitely what and, she feels is and, like, you know, yeah. So I think it's, it's, actually, it's, it's actually, there's a lot of layers to it, which I really like. I mean, the question of like audience and intent and, and, you know, how you get political messages to people, you know, I think it's a really, we could, we could definitely be talking about this for the next hour, but I think it's, it's really interesting. Like, I think narratives, like stories, fictional narratives have a unique ability to kind of reach people and make people think about things in a different way. And um, I think that, you know, a lot of our political problems nowadays come from people seizing on like anecdotal evidence and taking like, you know, one person did one thing in one place and therefore we're going to generalize that out to everybody and it's going to become like we're going to argue endlessly over the meaning of this one incident that may or may not have even happened the way we think it happened. And then we've seen that over and over again in the last few years, anecdotal evidence becoming kind of our entire political discourse rather than, you know, people can't really wrap their minds around, you know, statistics or bigger picture ideas. They have to have like, there's one person who did something bad or maybe something good, and we're going to just analyze this one person endlessly because we can't really get our heads around like the bigger issue. And so, and I think that it's, it's a kind of a, it's, it's mostly a good thing in, in our, the way our psyches work, but it can be very negative in terms of our ability to, to deal with bigger issues. And I think that, um, by the way, I'm going to have to leave in a few minutes, just FYI. Um, so I think that it's, you know, it can be useful to think about your audience and to think about like different kinds of audiences and how they're going to, obviously you can never really predict, but when I'm writing, I'm definitely writing to an imaginary reader who's like a smart, geeky person who may or may not agree with me about everything, but that's kind of who I have in my head. And I wrote this one short story called Don't Press Charges and I Won't Sue, which was about kind of my fears as a trans person going into the Trump era. I wrote it in January 2017. And part of what I was hoping to do was trick a lot of readers into identifying with one of the two main characters who is kind of, who is a cis person who kind of ends up doing a lot of horrible things to his trans former best friend and make you kind of think about this person and why they're behaving this way 
because I wanted cis people to kind of think about how they were treating trans people. And I wanted to do it in a sneaky enough way that you might, you know, identify with this guy and then realize, oh shit, you know. And so there are definitely times when I try to do that, but oftentimes I'm just trying to tell a really good story and the politics kind of emerge out of the characters and what they're dealing with. And I hope that I can write it in a way that any kind of like sufficiently sort of geeky sci-fi reader is gonna be able to hang with me and then if there's like a political message, it'll kind of sneak up on them, but it's, every story is different too. Well, Annalise, what do you think? We have time for one more audience question. Yeah, let's question. take one more question. One more audience, one more quick audience question. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, yes. yes, hi. I was just wondering if you could, um, Charlie Jane, maybe give us a, a, new, a world building is a big part of your work, and if you could give a little bit of an idea of what your process is, how do you come up with the ideas for and the details of the worlds you build? Okay, wow. Well, actually, I first I'm going to make a plug that there's an amazing class on world building. No, it's on, on research. I'm sorry. It's on research for world building. Research for world building happening next weekend. On Saturday, I'm teaching a class for Locus on how to turn your obsessive research into world building. So yeah, so if you good. want some help, <laughs> there's still a few slots left in the class. But anyway, go yeah, to Yeah, I mean, building. usually for me, it really varies, but nine times out of 10, I come up with the story and then I start kind of filling in the world to go with the story that I have and the characters that I have. And I, I always joke that I'm like, the character's walking down the sidewalk and I'm drawing the sidewalk out of their feet as they're going and I'm like, don't walk too fast, ah! But, you know, and then so for example, in All the Birds in the Sky, the witch character, the witch, Patricia, goes off to a magic school and I had to kind of stop when I got to that part and think for like a few weeks about like, what would magic school be like? And I try to find an answer that's like, I just brainstorm a lot and try to come up with something that I haven't seen before that seems to open up a lot of possibilities and that fits with the character. And I think about like the themes and the ideas of the story as a whole and how I want to kind of act those out. In the case of the city in the middle of the night and also in the case of a few of the other things I've written, which take place in an alien world or in a very kind of foreign setting, I will start with the setting. And in fact, it took me two years with City in the Middle of the Night of just imagining this tightly locked planet how people are living, how they are knowing when to sleep when there's no sunrise and no sunset, how they're constructing their society, how these aliens work, how do these aliens communicate, how is their society structured. I had to figure out all that stuff before I could write any of the story, and it was really frustrating. But I've had some other stories like that, too, where I just, I try to come up with something that is internally consistent and not cliched and kind of passes the smell test, kind of, in terms of, like, this feels like a world. But a, a big thing of World building for me is history. There has to be like a history that you can delve back into that's not just like, oh, this world just like got plunked down five minutes ago, fully formed, and nothing happened before five minutes ago. There has to be, it used to be like this, but now it's like this, and you can kind of see the vestiges of the ways that the world was in the past and how it got to be the way it is now. A lot of good world building for me is history and also community. Yeah. Um. Uh, <laughs> um, I think the, qu the question was really about your world building, but I can say, um, having watched Charlie build worlds, that um, she does. She actually draws in a little notebook. Sometimes. I doodle. I doodle. She a doodles lot. and she does. She fills a lot of notebooks with stuff. And I remember when City in the Middle of the Night was coming together, and one of the things that she was super obsessed with was people's sense of time, right. which I think is in the book. A it's little. a lot. It's a lot I mean, in the book. It's, but it, I mean, you. I feel. I feel like you spent a lot of time world building that, and a lot of the stuff wound up on the cutting room floor, or just it wasn't in the book directly. Yeah. And um, and it's it's a lot of it is implicit in the book now, and I think mm. um, it's it's interesting because I feel like Oops, that book started as a meditation on time and became a lot of other things in the process, and I think that's. Um, I think that's a big part of world building in general, that you kind of start out with one idea, one obsession, um, and then it evolves into something else. Like for me, like Future of Another Timeline actually started out as a book, uh, just a straight alternate history about a world where uh, in the United States, we don't have um, the right to abortion and a group of teenage girls start murdering guys who are rapists. And I was like, that just seems obvious that that's what would happen, is if you didn't have abortion, we would have to just start murdering people. Um, Makes and sense. It just made sense to me at the time. 
Um, and that was, and I kind of did a lot of thinking about that world and how it would work and what those teenage girls would be like. And those girls are in the book. You know, half the book is about these murderous teenage girls um, who are dealing with a lot of other issues as well. But then as I continued with world building, I realized, I kept saying, well, how did the world get to be that way? Like, why is abortion illegal? What's happening? And finally, I was like, oh, it must be time travelers editing the timeline. There must be an edit war between feminists and men's rights activists. That seems re realistic. Um, and, uh, and so it really became like, it, it really started as something quite mundane. I mean, just as a, as a kind of mundane alternate history. And Charlie needs to go. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Okay. We all knew you were gonna leave. Okay. I'm we built leave. this world. Sorry. Bye, I'm sorry. Charlie. You're all wonderful. Thank you for coming. You're wonderful. Thank you for coming. Well, actually, we we really didn't want to continue with that, Charlie. No, we're we're wound, we wound up. We, yes. We've wound up. So I I think we should all be proud and delighted that this community, um, these plants grew out of the soil. Uh, these young people are... Are now old people. Are now old people. <laughs> but they're, being, they're sought out in New York and L.A., and they come out of the, a rich, um, popular, and technological matrix that is San Francisco. Well, and thanks so, to you, and, and thanks to Rudy. Thing. And, yeah, thanks to our excellent elders. You know, Rudy they raised us right. Rudy did most of the hard work. Rudy but. did the hard work. So Rudy has heard the story a thousand <laughs> times, but it's true that when I was in the seventh grade, I found his novel, The Sex Sphere, at my local mall bookstore, and it blew my mind. And um, when I met Rudy many years later, I was like, you're the guy who wrote that book. And he was deeply upset that a seventh grader had read that book. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you, Rudy, because it really set me on the right path. <laughs> and thank you all. And Annalie, I think it's going to sign some books. I will sign. I've signed yeah. some books, but I will personalize them yeah. for you if yeah. you would like. Okay. So awesome. Thanks, and you guys. And we'll see you in January. You can subscribe to the SF and SF podcast in iTunes. Just search for SF in SF. We're also on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash SFINSF podcast, all one word, or on somefm.com and click on the podcast link. The SFNSF podcast was produced by Marin McDonald, recorded and engineered by Rusty Hodge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>